0: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts, and very proud to
1: be so. Welcome to our podcast.
2: Good evening, everyone. My name is Owen Hopkins. I'm the Royal Academy's architecture program curator, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this event, which forms part of the Royal Academy season on the future of housing. It's the fifth and final in the series of discussion events in which we've sought to tackle some of the big Overarching issues that mark the present housing crisis in Britain. This evening, we focus on the question of design and how designers might respond to the emotional attachment and sense of belonging that's integral to how we identify to where we live. What we've called this evening, the psychology of home. Now, this evening's discussion is chaired by Edwin Heathcote, who is a writer and is architecture critic of the Financial Times. He is author of many books, including 2012's The Meaning of Home. So please join me in welcoming Edwin and our panel.
1: Thank you. Well, every uh, time I pick up the standard, there's a, uh, a new announcement on housing. Each party has at least two announcements it seems a day uh today's i think are about uh support they're partly giving support to those buying a house via stamp duty the tories are promising to sell off what's left of social housing there's a little uh, snippet every day but it's all a kind of flailing around so we're not here necessarily to um, sort the problems out but we are here to think about what they might be discuss them and the idea is that we leave as much time for an open discussion with you as possible. So there should be about an hour or so in which we encourage you all to to ask questions and, and, and propose answers as well. Uh, I think I've been uh, asked to do this because of the book that Owen mentioned, The Meaning of Home. This here is billed as the psychology of home and that was really what my book was addressing. It was about the iconography and the, the symbolism and the domestic setting in film in, in psychology and so on, which I thought was a was a popular subject, but having seen my latest uh, sales figures, I probably was wrong. Um, so it might be down to you to make this uh, interesting at the end if we can't do it. But I think there is plenty to get our teeth into. So tonight we have uh, Roger Zagolovich, who is uh, Chairman and Creative Director of Solid Space, which is one of the most interesting uh, London developers, one of the few that really works with architects to, to create something interesting. Um, we have Nicola Dempsey who is going to talk a little about landscape and the and the, the space around the home rather than just the, the units that we talk about so much. Uh, we have Robert Adam who uh, is an architect who tells me that he has I think 26,000 units on his books at the moment. Uh, so he is a one-man solution to the housing crisis. <laughs> and finally we have uh, uh, Lindsay Hanley who's book about estates a few years ago uh, caused a a real stir, I think, and and really made us think about the the role of social housing uh, in in society as a whole. It's a terrific book. recommend it to anyone. Uh, And each of my uh, panel tonight is going to give us about a five-minute chat to begin with, to to get the ball rolling. So I am starting with... Lindsay. please, go ahead.
3: Thank you, Edwin. Thank you also to Owen and the the Royal Academy for uh, for hosting this uh, season on housing, it's its its absolutely fantastic, uh, well in the most depressing way possible actually it's fantastic that housing has come on, uh, to be so high up um, on um, the, the political and the sort of uh, the media and cultural um, and social um, agenda. Uh, certainly when uh, I wrote my book, um, or when my book was published uh, eight years ago, um, there was a sort of incipient housing crisis at the time and... Um, in eight, the April after the book came out, um, Gordon Brown announced we will build two hundred thousand new homes a year, and two hundred thousand homes, new homes a year, seems to be the magic figure that the politicians keep sort of popping up uh, all the time, sort of in this sort of endless cycle. And it's been this endless cycle for the last uh, for the last eight years uh, since the book came out. All the while, um, and all the while, about half that number have, have, have carried on. Being built, so obviously the the the, um, the situation has, has has got worse and worse and worse. Um, but I'm particularly glad that there's a session in this season on on um, the psychology uh, and, and indeed the meaning um, of home because um, I think mainly because of the place I grew up in and the kind of the obsession it gave me with um, trying to work out what makes places um, and dwellings in those places, what makes them work and possibly what makes them not work. Um, you know, just to, to put that in context I, I grew up uh, on, a, on a large 60s overspill estate um, outside Birmingham um, and it bust a lot of greenbelt um, and it was built between 1965 and 1970 and this was the point at which uh, there never before or since have there been so many new homes built per year um, in 1968 there were 450 odd you know more than 450,000 homes built in a single year um, and so whenever I think of the housing crisis you know the, when people talk about the housing the answer to the housing crisis is to build more homes then I often think oh just be careful about the ones you build you know <laughs> it is about it is about numbers because we're in such a state of crisis but 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 the 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 sort of the numbers led solution at that time didn't always work out i think um so you know it, it feels like i know plenty about what might not make uh, a home or a, a dwelling or a, a, a place work um Chelmsley Wood, uh, where I grew up, um, is the size, or certainly was in terms of numbers, uh, uh, population numbers, the size of a town without the identity of a town. Um, It had uh, nearly 20,000 houses and flats. Um, All the housing was built before the amenities, and that includes public transport. So how on earth you were sort of expected to sort of get there, and once you got there, how you were expected to get out, I'm not sure really, but <laughs> uh, the, the housing was built first, the, the the shops and the schools and the churches were all built later. Um, I've got a fantastic picture, um, I, w- I went through all the archives in the Birmingham libraries of, of pictures of the estate being built and so on in the late 60s, and uh, I've got a fantastic picture of a church service being held on a grass verge, because they hadn't built the, they hadn't built the church yet and people still wanted to have a service. Um, so, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, I was born in 76, so I was growing up uh, there in the 80s and early 90s. Um, you know, it sort of bedded in, really, I guess. Um, and a lot of the ways in which it bedded in sort of visually is that it was already starting to look quite tatty and under, and under-maintained. Um, our houses um certainly um you know kind of varied in quality some of the some of the houses on the estate were were you know were very nice space wise and um had a little bit more going on um you know visually architecturally than uh, than 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 some of the others but the, but the overriding sense was of a great sense of kind of uniformity really um and um Although I wasn't aware of it at the time, of course, you know, when you're a kid, you just grow up where you grow up, and you've got no awareness that it's any different to any place outside. Um, but um, when I left home and, and moved to London um, when I was 18, I suddenly realised that 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 it was a place sort of not quite like, <laughs> not quite like other places, um, apart from possibly Milton Keynes, <laughs> but. Um, the, the 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 sense of um, cut offness um, and a, a strange sense of sort of claustrophobia and agoraphobia at the same time I think is how I would characterize the experience of of growing up in 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 our particular house and 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 on that particular uh, estate you know the walls were really thin there were small houses and the walls were really thin and um, even though the estate had low density, it was it was built in a kind of Radburn layout, which was the kind of 30s dormitory town kind of layout that was really meant for cars. Uh, uh, meant for cars to go up and down straight roads and then you would get out of your car and then you would walk up a little walkway and enter a sort of labyrinthine series of cul-de-sacs and, 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 and so on. Um, that, um, you know, most people couldn't afford cars, so it wasn't sort of suited to, to, to that particular environment but but like i say, that sense of sort of claustrophobia and, and, and agrophobia at the same time i think had a lot to do with uh the the, the 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 self-similarity of the housing um sort of coming up against against the just the sheer size the sheer size of the place and as i say it, had, it was the size of a town while lacking the identity of one you know i mean obviously places sort of grow into themselves and, and you know places that would it Desi- actually designated new towns, you know, like Harlow and Basildon and so on. You know, you would think of them as being towns now. Um but but there were places of of equivalent size, you know, I mean places for instance like, you know, maybe um Peterley or Washington. But um I think what they also sort of brought with them was a massive sense of of homesickness, really. And lots of people, you know, there's a really famous book called Family and Kinship in East London, where people were moved from, um, in uh, from Bethnal Green, um, in East London out to Debden, which was a sort of, uh, an interwar estate, uh, in Essex. Um, and, um, so many people could not get used to the new estates and, um, were desperate to go back. Uh, and in terms of sort of public transport being poor you know found it quite difficult to go back so the only way they could go back was actually to move, (laughs) move back. Um, So you know I started to develop develop this obsession with you know what could make places work better and what could make homes better Um, and you know the question is is whether low density housing is automatically not a good thing um, and whether you automatically need a high density of people in order to provide the amenities to make places feel more like home. Um, And also whether you can have good quality housing, uh, good quality dwellings in a poor quality, uh, uh, in in a poor, uh, in a landscape of poor quality. Um, And also that the the relationship between homes and uh, availability of work and availability of transport. And of course, you know, you can't get to, even if there's jobs, available and they're not right by where you live uh, if the transport isn't any good you can't get to that job um so all of these things sort of started to obsess me some <laughs> somewhat uh, and certainly in the last few years um I've, I've since uh spent a long time living in london and uh, since moved to liverpool and now live in a kind of very kind of pleasant inner suburb of liverpool and the difference in terms of the uh to use the cliche sense of community, um, is absolutely massive. Um it, it's it's a, a sort of uh, a place that sort of grew incrementally out of the city. Um and you know is mix is a mixture of sort of speculative thirties, private, semi detached housing, you know, Victorian terraces and and, and so on. And um the, the amenities sort of grew with it. Uh, and I don't know about the, the, the relationship between sort of the affluence of the place and the quality of the amenities and the quality of the transport certainly but um, I find it significant that uh, I live in a place where just about everybody, everybody could afford a car but they actually choose to use the bus and train because the buses and trains are so good. Uh, whereas a few, uh, few miles further out, um, in Speak, which is a 1920s estate, about seven miles out of the centre of Liverpool, um, people manifestly can't afford cars, but are often often feel forced to drive just in order to have the ability to get to a job that isn't very well paid. You know, it's that, it's that relationship, that circular relationship, I think, between, um, you know, your actual dwelling, the place it's in... Uh, the 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 quality of the quality of your sort of living standards and how it's affected how it's affected by you know whether whether the the, the homes are close to jobs and jobs jobs close to homes and 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 so on um and also just i think where I live now i realize that it's it, it it's very 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 important to be in a place that you don't feel like you were made to go there like you feel like you've chosen to be there um and i Obviously, that has an awful lot to do with uh, having the means to live in a place where you've chosen. Um, but uh, you know, given the the you know the, the difficulty of the difficulty of of uh, finding affordable housing for a lot of people, increasingly uh, people are, are basically finding themselves in places where they wouldn't choose to live, and are always trying to get out of, which militates against a sense of community. So uh, I hope that sums up a few thoughts on that subject.
1: Thank you. Actually, it, it reminds me that when I was uh, a child, and I lived in a, in a little um, Victorian terrace, a uh, typical London Victorian terrace, two up, two down, and uh, I used to go and visit my, my school friends on the, on the council estate. Uh, I thought they were living in a kind of paradise. Because uh, they had all this land around them that you could kick a football around. They they had views. They had these kind of you know fantastic stairwells where you could throw water on, on old ladies and stuff. And the whole thing was, the whole thing was this kind of children's paradise. It really seemed to me in my crappy little house where I couldn't kick a ball because I'd be worried about breaking someone's window. So it, it, it's interesting. how children can have a very different uh, idea of what constitutes uh, the ideal space. But that idea of outdoor space that we, that we touched on there and, and the this rather interesting claustrophobic, agrophobic mixture that you bring up brings us, I guess, to the, the space around the home and uh, and the meaning that has for, for us as dwellers. So, Nicola.
4: Yeah, I am, I suppose, the... Oh, I was going to say elephant in the room, that's all wrong. What I mean is, um, yeah, I'm going to be talking not so much about the plots and the housing per se um, in terms of units, but... I do come from a department of landscape and so we um, often disregard um, the houses when we talk to our students and get them to really think about the connections between the common spaces, um, obviously the interaction between the um, indoors and outdoors, but very much um, about how play- places are um, designed and, and uh, planned for moving around. Urban landscapes that are providing places that are um, good for chatting to neighbours, social interaction, and that kind of idea about what design, um, how design can fit within that. Also coming from a Department of Landscape, so much about the ecological um, dimension and the ecological value of that space, trees, vegetation, and how that contributes to our everyday lives. And I'll come back to that in uh, in a minute, because the, the key things that, that, I, um, that really underpin the research that I do are about um, aspects of quality and management. Um, I I believe very strongly they contribute significantly. And, you know, we've got research, and I think a growing body of research that really, you know, shows that that is the case. and very much um, kind of contributes to the psychology of home. But I think what's really tricky is grappling with what quality means and um, understanding how management can happen in practice. Um, they're difficult concepts because they mean different things to different people. And I think we'll probably come across lots of different ideas of what other decision makers might think quality is. Um, but you know, ultimately, I think everybody would sign up to the idea that we all should, everybody should have access to high-quality housing that's well maintained. Regardless of where you live, if that's high density city centers or low density suburbs, um, yeah as Lindsay was just saying, and it doesn't necessarily need to be compromised, but uh, you know we've got some research that's showing that um, some of the designs or some of the housing and the outdoor space that's been provided in that housing is fundamentally flawed, we would say it's some of the assumptions that are being made about the design are particularly houses that has, uh, that have shared spaces shared outdoor spaces that it's presumed that everybody will use. So, um, As a kind of a starting point, I was involved in some research a few years ago um, that was looking at uh, density um, in five UK cities, and unsurprisingly, the higher the density of the area, higher the built-up area, the less outdoor space, the less green space there was. Um, There wasn't anywhere near as much private green space. I think there was something like a fifth of people in sort of more city-centre urban areas said they had their own private gardens. When we talk to people in the suburbs further away from the city centre, it was almost everybody had access to a garden. Um, And um, In the higher density areas, the open space that was provided in a lot of housing, or it's becoming more prevalent I would say, is space that's shared with other residents. Very little private space, it might be a balcony, um, but often there's a lot of the shared space that's um, provided as that that only type of residential outdoor space. some recent research was done by a colleague of mine, Amanda Griffin, who was looking at whether residents actually use that space or not, and she found that residents who only have access to that kind of shared outdoor space um, were significantly less likely to use it than people who have their own gardens. So there were some people who had their own gardens, and there was more, uh, kind of a bit of shared space that they would all use. There, were, there, was, there was no really compelling um, evidence that, um, that they were any more likely or not to, to use it, but when people only had access, they had no real private space of their own, um, then it was very closely linked to the layout and design, the decision not to use that space. A lot of people talked to Amanda about having no privacy, no sense of privacy in that shared space. Um, particularly, it was acute for people who were living in developments where there were 20 or more dwellings sharing that space. So. Kind of the higher density areas, and that was made worse because residents didn't get an opportunity to really get to know their neighbours or get to know other people who were living in that development, um, and couldn't and didn't recognise them. So again, there seemed to be a little bit of a tipping point in terms of um, that particular kind of housing where that happened. So Amanda was asking them, um, how would you like to change your outdoor space in an ideal world? What would you do? And a, a lot of people would say, well, I'd like some of my own, please. You know, where's my, where would could I have my own private? Um, Uh, open space. And I don't know about you, I'm not, even though I do come from a Department of Landscape, I'm not much of a gardener, and so maybe I'm not the best person. Sometimes I take my garden for granted, but if I didn't have it, um, you know, I I really, um, you know, I've lived in other kinds of properties where there are, where I don't have that kind of sense of of private space, and um, it would have a a detrimental effect, I think, on my quality of life. My four-year-old would, um, yeah, well, would probably drive us all stir crazy inside our two up, two down in Sheffield. Um, But also, it's, you know, it's about kind of, if, if financial uh, value is the way that, you, that, that we have to also think about it, you know, it would have a detrimental effect on that if gardens were disappearing, and we've seen that happening um, you know, around the country. Alongside Amanda's work, research that I do into perceptions of quality, so to try and understand, okay, I can talk about quality is, is important, but what does it mean? Well, when we've asked people about what they want their residential outdoor space to be, One of the key things is, I want it to be attractive. I think it needs to be attractive. So, okay, what does that mean? When asked to explain, it's about being green, it's about being well-maintained, and interestingly, about having mature trees in their view, not necessarily in their garden, but in the view. So again, this idea that you've got that sort of passive um, or kind of a a, a longer distance um, Green space or view, um, as well as that kind of uh, more active um, uh, interaction that you have with your own space. Um, I don't know whether that's a particular UK thing. And um, we, just before we we uh, were uh, started, we were talking about you know kind of perceptions of living in other high-density areas in Spain, in India, in Ch- in China. Would the same kinds of ingredients be uh, as important for uh, uh, to describe attractive residential outdoor spaces there? So I think that they are fundamental, and the research bears this out that they are fundamental um, parts of design, quality and attractiveness. But the key thing as well to to kind of make that a a um, long-term endeavor that really is meaningful is thinking about once the designer and the developer move on, um, how is it managed? How is it maintained? Um, particularly when we're talking about those common spaces that we all use. It can be a real challenge to work out, well, who is meant to look after it? You know, are we talking about local authorities, housing associations, private sector, uh, management companies, residents getting involved, community groups, uh, resident associations, etc., cetera, et cetera? Um, where um, places aren't looked after, where vandalism and wear and tear, um, you know, aren't then nipped in the bud or um, kind of dealt with, it's um, you know we, we can all think of examples where that happens, and um, you know it's uh, it's the difference between perhaps a very well used space and one that then gets forgotten or avoided. Um, and you know I uh, don't want to use the term no-go area, but you know there are plenty of examples where even when lots of money has been invested in places uh, in cities such as Sheffield, where if that longer-term view hasn't been taken, um, then you know was it ultimately a waste a waste of money? So I think there's this, um, you know, the high quality design, it ca- can it be translated into great places for the long term? Well, I would say, of course, it could. You know, we've got to think beyond um, uh, the award ceremony cycles, a lot of really good award-winning, um, you know, uh, developments. But what happens 10 years down the line, 50 years down the line and beyond? We've coined a concept called place keeping, might not be the right one, but it's certainly got a longer term view um, when we're talking about how to uh, think about spaces. Thinking about the function of um, the housing, why, who we're creating it for, what's that uh, long term um, vision. Um, And I I, I do think that taking the long term um, approach it does require a change of mindset, you know, it's got to go way beyond political terms uh, and short-term, you know, building processes and really thinking about how that design process fits within a much longer management um, process uh, that's ongoing, you know, and we're talking about not just five years down the line, but, you know, 50, 100 years down the line. So um, I think that's probably all that I want to say um, and um, I just don't think that, that, that even though we have lots of different definitions of what quality is, I don't think that we should shy away from trying to grapple with some of these you know, very subjective and, and thorny issues because we, you know, we, we know where it works and it's about learning from where it doesn't work.
1: I just wanted to ask you a quick question. I spent a lot of time reading about something called evidence-based design which is used in hospitals. Uh, And as far as I could see that there was no correlation between people getting better and the architecture, except for one thing. In the States, the huge survey, they found that if you had a view of a tree Mm. from your bed, you had a a better outcome, slightly small percentage, 10%, 15% better outcome, something like that. Is there any similar research about people with views of of nature or or, uh, I can't know what you call it, happiness research of people who have access to outdoor space?
4: Um, well, yeah, absolutely, been, and I think what is um, a, a lot of it, uh, or it, it depends on whether you're talking about public, private space. Like I say, uh, the unpicking whether um, it's about you owning your house or renting your house, mm-hmm. and then what kind of housing you own. There right. are those kind of well-being and sort yeah. of you know quality of life issues there. But also, I think having uh, green space that's within walking distance, um, and certainly a lot of. Scandinavian research is is bearing these these things out that if you live in a greener area there are there are better kind of quality of life outcomes Associated with it. So yeah,
1: 26,000 units on the drawing board. Uh, I think Robert specializes in master planning these He's not designing each of these himself. I I expect so uh, but I would ask You you actually also wrote an extremely interesting book recently about the global perspective on architecture the globalization of architecture I uh, we're here to talk about the British housing problem really but I think you'll, I'm sure you'll touch on I'm looking at your fearsome notes over here and I'm sure you'll uh, touch on all these in your Well no
0: I went won't talk about unless somebody asked me about actually, it Actually I think, there's, I, think, I think there are other more uh, issues closer to home I mean about the psychology of housing I, I thought probably ought to start with identity um, Because identity was it's a very complicated issue um, But it's extremely important uh, it, obviously, it goes well beyond housing. You know, it goes by the way we dress, speak, who we know, who we meet, etc., cetera, et cetera, But it obviously um, has an impact on housing. And it's about who you think you are, um, where you come from, and, and where you think you're going. And it, it ties up with things like status. Um, when you actually get to, to, to dealing with um, the home, uh, and then this I, I, I will follow from Nicola, is that? There's, I mean, in my opinion, there's very little doubt that, that we talk about the home, but actually, the primary importance is the place. Uh, and interesting, we a number of years ago did research called "Curb Appeal." Really quite a number of years ago, but social trends don't change that quickly. And it was very clear that, um, in that case, we looked at purchasers. Is that purchasers buy by place first? Well, you know, you do. You know, you say, "I want to live in a nice neighborhood, You know, um, and that, that this is clearly very important. Everyone understands it's important. Um, uh, interestingly, just your view about greenness, we also discovered that people uh, were very, uh, very keen to have, a, interestingly, a view of a tree. They felt that this is actually really quite important to them. Um, but so people buy by place first. Interestingly, developers sell by unit uh, and people also buy houses, but uh, I always depress architects by going through this list saying well first you choose a neighborhood I can the order went something like neighborhood a garage number of bedrooms uh, Size of garden then appearance of house. It went roughly in that sort of order um, But nonetheless developers sell by unit, you know you go into a development and you you get the Windsor or the the, the Adam or the whatever it is and um, And they sell them just like refrigerators, and it's a real problem because actually getting them to understand that is not about equalization of amenity of unit and sale by unit, is 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 one of the significant issues we have all the time. But both place and home are a really important expression of identity. And this is why it's not just a commercial issue, it's a terribly important issue for everybody, socially in every possible way. And I think making sort of general statements, people can shoot me down, it's easy to be shot down general statements, is that people, and broadly, people seek security and comfort in their home. Um, and the other thing is privacy and space; that um, they're very closely associated. And this is a practical issue. I have to say, it's also an aesthetic issue. And on the whole, people really don't want to be challenged. Um, in the research that we did, and I should say, we ran focus groups. And I would recommend—you might be sceptical about focus groups. But I was with a C2, C2, C1, C2 women in Croydon was when I, I happened to attend. I would recommend that every architect is chained and gagged. And forced to sit in front of a group of people talking about what they think about their home because people are generally quite intelligent um, quite understanding and quite perceptive although most architects don't think they are um, but also most people are not particularly aesthetic uh, and actually why should they be you know um, I'm not, I don't watch rugby or, or, or football and this is a major problem for me in social um, activity um, but nonetheless you know why why do people involved in aesthetics things assume everyone should be aesthetic I think another issue with this is there is a kind of inertia in the process. I think you remember when someone goes out to buy a, um, a home of any kind, um, I think it's around about a maximum of 15% of them that are on the market are new. The rest of them are old. So everyone is comparing all the time, um, older buildings with newer buildings. This builds in a sort of inertia. Uh, the inertia is also, is, is, is also commercial and practical. Um, a house builder, generally speaking, um, uh, is, is, is averse to risk. It's a highly capitalized business, you know, it, it involved with large economic cycles. They're simply not going to take a risk if they can possibly avoid it. Um, why would they? It's also practical. Um, a lot of, because of the nature of the British housing market and the fact that people move, believe they're going to move three or four times throughout their life, as a contrary to stay in one place, they are generally very concerned about what they're going to resell. And this is, a, in my opinion, is another commercial problem, because developers suffer from what I call first-sale syndrome, is that once they've sold it, they don't give a damn. and um, They just walk away, they've sold it, and they move on to the next thing. Um, so this is a, a, a big problem for a designer, because you might say, I, I want this to last long and look good. Actually, they don't give the stuff, uh, with the exception of Roger, of course, who is a developer who cares a lot. Um, and so, I mean, as a designer, I mean, we do a lot of master planning, which you only have limited control over design. We also design speculative housing. We also design absolutely stonking great big houses for rich people. So I, 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 I straddle all markets. Um, but I- effectively, uh, and I may be shot down for this, I think it's my duty to give people what they want as well as I possibly can. Um, one of the problems with this uh, is that it's a seller's market? Um, is that this really doesn't help quality? It's very difficult to be discerning about what you buy when actually you have trouble getting hold of the product at all. Um, and it's a it's a sort of you know thing out there in, in in the speculative housing industry. Is that is that quality counts in a recession because people because people can be much more choosy because there's a there's a surplus and if they've got enough money they can pick and choose. Um, it's very interesting to think about Lindsay about do you want to live there? I think this is this is one of the problems that there are um, Areas I know I, I I didn't design them myself. I have to say quickly um, Where people uh, basically move in there knowing they're going to move out very quickly and these this is a These are varied ability I can name some of them and pease down st. John for example um, uh, uh, I, I regard a great success in, in a master plans and I have tested this is that if, they're big, if people When people upsize and downsize, they want to stay in the same area. I regard that as about the best test of success you can get. The trouble is, it's got to be there for about 10 to 15 years before you can test it. Um, so, as I say, I really don't think that helps quality. So, and, and the whole range of things in the market are, are a problem because, in the end, new housing is a market activity. Um, and I think a lot of the problems we have with quality is simply lack of supply. I didn't want to bring it, in the end, we end up bringing it back to things like this. Um, So i finish on that, but I probably had my five minutes. But I just want to stress one thing. I have what's called the two-sentence test, by the way. Whenever you're in London and talking about urban design or housing, within two sentences, most people trend it back to London. Um, Don't forget, London is not Britain, Britain is not London, and you can buy a house for a pound in Liverpool.
1: Well, clearly, you can't buy a house for a pound in London. Uh, I think unlikely. Perhaps. And uh, you've got quite some experience of not building pounds oh. and houses for one pound. Exactly. So I think from the these the, the 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 general assessment, which I think is probably absolutely right, and I'm sure we'll return to it at the end about the problem being supply. I wonder if we could talk to you about how you, as a developer, how you supply more better. Uh,
5: yes, I, I I I'd like to introduce myself. Really, a solid space. And 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 what I like to say is. Um, Uh, we are an independent developer and what does that mean it means that we really work in the small scale and so what we're doing is we're working on those patches of land we are actually working in central London but we have to work on those patches of land which are entirely forgotten Um, and they they are what we call the gap sites or the kind of infill sites they are leftovers and and for everyone that we look at then it becomes because in a way, nobody wants to see development next door to them. And I recognize quite comfortably that I am a rapacious developer and really not likely to win any votes. But I, in a way, would wish that everybody recognizes that our need for housing is genuine, that actually shelter is just a a fundamental right. And that actually what's odd is that we seem to have compounded the notion of living in a home and an investment and that the notion really i i i think what's interesting about the talks we've heard today is that my colleagues on the panel are talking about the large scale and i think that what we've seen in the past is those large-scale plans have actually been the areas where things go wrong so I, I work in an opposite position. I work almost like the other end of a telescope. So when we find a little gap site, it's interesting that we also search for a tree. We search for a tree and an old wall and a forgotten window and a faded door. And all of those are the signs. They're kind of romantic signs. The center of the city is a kind of, is to, to me, is a romantic place. And what, what I'm trying to do when I, when I stand there and I found this site, in my eyes I'm kind of envisioning the uh, volume of development that I can get there. And I say that that's, what's interesting is that that's a kind of exercise in solid and void. And what's interesting is the void is the public realm. The void is... And inside the city we may not have huge gardens, we may have quite small spaces, but we do have sky. So in a way when I'm, at, when I'm envisaging Uh, the development that's possible into this small gap site. I'm thinking of this in a three-dimensional form, and I'm thinking of this as the solid, which is what I'm trying to enclose and sell to my customer, and the void, which is the space that's left off around it. I think that we forget that culture, painting, performance, literature, all mean something in our lives. But why not in our homes? This is an oddity to me. I always wonder, when we read our arts pages inside our our, our broadsheets, uh, that we read about all these other aspects, but we never read about housing. What we have in housing is a separate supplement, which actually is all about greed. It's a kind of pornography. It's not about a critical review of a new development. If we started to critically review the developments, like we do uh, theater or dance or film, people would then actually genuinely say, that's not good enough. So I like to think as a developer that my stuff is there for, for, for critique. Now I like to say that I want to demand joy. I want you as my consumer to demand joy from our houses. Intrigue your own, your lovers, your families. Contentment is at stake. Have an upstairs and a downstairs with room to expand, demand what I call sturdy walls I like to have them made from poured concrete but they could be insulated really they're insulating from the hubbub outside your windows demand high ceilings to let you breathe and think feel solid floors under your feet reject shaky petitions which quiver when you dare to laugh Refuse tight rooms, joyless, claustrophobic, and devoid of meaning. Enjoy small doors for intimacy, and then wide doors to make an entrance. Organize the design of the home to run smoothly. What I mean by that is enjoy the things that pull out, beds that fold, pull down from the the ceiling, Other cupboards that invert that become a cupboard and then all these becomes the kind of elegances that help you make that run smooth smoothly I like to demand steps that let you dance freely around your space I you can go up and go down I like to engage with a set of volumes that actually help you lyrically look at your views inside and out I like To sit in a room that frees our minds that allows us to open our minds to the breath of the city i want to be in that room to watch the transformation of the seasons and i want to contemplate that from a place of tranquility what we do is we make hand-built homes and we like to think of them as real cookers and we want to chair we want we cherish them, we want you to cherish them. We want you to actually acknowledge that they're something different because they are hand-built and they're independent. We want to engage with them and we want to fall in love with them. And we want more of them.
1: Okay, well thank you very much. Uh, thanks for all of those presentations, that's uh, uh, terrific. I I appreciate that um, uh, you said that London isn't the UK, but... We are in London and um, I notice it's a relatively young audience because I think it's the, it's the young who are affected most deeply by this housing crisis, for want of a better phrase. So, I was wondering, and I'm going to kick this, I'm going to kick the, the discussion off with the panels, feel free to come in after this, <coughs> whether... There is some kind of disruption you know we we read a lot about disruptive technologies we were talking about it a little earlier, whether it's uber in the in the taxi market or, or Google or whoever it might be uh, something comes along somebody comes along with an idea which flips the market entirely and I was wondering whether any of you had any ideas what that shock to the system might be that might um that might really throw something interesting up, whether it might be, you know, a government coming along, and I appreciate this is unlikely, proposing that we build a few hundred thousand units of council housing, or whatever it might be, What is there anything any of you could envisage that might really shift the system up a gear? I
5: think this is the most fascinating question, because in a way we've had a set of disruptions, because when we invented buy-to-rent, um, uh, buy so we had ASTs, at that point, that mortgage, that ability to, to borrow the money to do that allowed a new investment class to come in. So that disrupted our supply. When we had uh, inflation in house prices and not inflation or very much lower inflation in our, in retail price index, our ability to be able to afford to pay for our mortgage collapsed. Hence, we now have a mortgage that has gone from three times your income to fourteen times your income. That's actually disrupted in a kind of weird way our housing supply market. The fact that we now have a set of regulations and a set of controls in place, that the same way in which house prices have escalated up means that if you have a house next if you live in a house which is going up, you'd want nothing next door to you. So our NIMBYism has become kind of, in a way, grown on steroids. So that in itself is another disruption. Now if you're trying to interrupt those disruptions, in a way you've got to invert that system. And I think it's very interesting at the moment, uh, I believe, that the government and the house builders are arm in arm. And if you look at three points of the equation, they're arm in arm, and the consumer is sat below them. So they sit above us and the consumer sits below them. And there is a kind of complete economic illogical business plan that needs to be upset, where the house builders represent on their balance sheets uh, land banking, which they do not want to build on because that's the way they will actually report bigger profits to their element. So in a way, the disruption that we need is land and occupation of land, and the freedom as a right to build on that land? Oh, well,
0: I think because of course, the land tax might do that. but um, uh, I mean, land tax, basically you tax having land, therefore if you have land, you've got to do something with it to avoid the tax. But I mean certainly, my, my developer clients, of which you're not one, I'm saying, Roger, never mind. You can always change that. Um, <laughs> uh, my large developer clients say, well, actually that they're, they're constrained by sales rates. Um, you, you generally speaking don't sell more than a house a week, and if you're sitting on literally hundreds of acres, you you, you develop it accordingly. There's no doubt that that, that there are, in, in the industry there are land traders and builders, and most developers are both land traders and builders. But, but in the end, it's like you know, it's like any any kind of any kind of investment. Uh, you can invest in futures, but you know, futures in corn. But if there's no corn, there's not much point in investing in futures. So I think, this is, you know, I, I'm cautious about land banking. But on the subject of disruption, I mean, the trouble with disruptions is there's, there's, there's revolutions, which we sort of don't really want because everyone starves and, and um, you know, no one invests in anything and so on and so on. But we, we are actually, in my, in my view, involved in an interestingly slow disruption. Uh, I left out some, for some of you, um, lucky people picked them up, called um, Tomorrow's Home. Um, which was a research into changes that are taking place, and as we're supposed to be a young audience, uh, uh, young is a relative term, of course, at um, the 18 to 34 age cohort. What is clear from research is that the age profile of most cities is going down. Um, uh, and that's reasonably clear, you'll find it in the figures. Um, a, whole, a whole series of complex issues involved with this. Um, one of them is what's called commitment delay, is that people get married later, they uh, form houses later, they have children later. It's moved on by about a decade. People are more cautious about jobs. I think it's a very good thing. People don't fix their jobs at an early stage as they used to. So you have this, you have this um, extra decade of people who, um, in the past, would have been anxious to get out into the suburbs and, and you know, form a family. Not the case. Now, this actually predates the, 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 the recession, as indeed is the increase in, re- in rental accommodation. Um, it seems that if the figures are right is that rental is actually just to some extent a, uh, a lifestyle choice as much as a necessity is If if you want to remain flexible and mobile and if you're remaining flexible and mobile uh, Then you simply don't want to be necessarily be tied down with a mortgage which holds you down for a long period of time So I think these things are happening the other disruption that is happening in the market which I think is a very interesting one um, it is what's happening with um, with the internet and digital communication. Um, I, I don't happen to live in London, though I have an office in London. I, don't, I know I can always get a seat in the train on Friday, um, because a huge number of people work at home on Fridays, and some people work at home on Fridays and Thursdays as well. Once you've worked at home for a day and a half of a, of a working week, you're 50% of the time at your home, and you're 50% of the time in in, in a place of work wherever that might be. And this is a really significant shift because probably the last piece of single-use zoning we have at the moment is housing. And before the Industrial Revolution, the division between home and work really didn't exist at all. And that is beginning to happen now in a sort of way. So I think there are disruptions taking place, but there's slow social changes that are taking place. And I think that is possibly, when we come to look at it, that, and I, I speculate, autonomous vehicles um, are, are two of the uh, of the major things are going to change the way we think about housing and how we live?
1: I think you raised an interesting point about cyberspace. I uh, I feel I ought to defer to either my younger colleagues on the panel or, or people in the audience. But my daughters for instance, don't seem to need any more space than, than a than a chair or a patch on the floor, and their entire existence is on the iPod or the iPad in front of them. <laughs> now, it seems to me that's a radical change in the way we live, in the meaning of home, in the psychology of home, because if they can access everything they need, through, they, they certainly don't use the garden, you know, which we... So we moved, I moved from a flat to a garden for a kid's sake, and they got iPods, so they don't need the garden anymore. So it's, it's a kind of interesting... It's, it's a complete reversal of all I think, that experience. I think The thing we discovered is, is, is that
0: people can actually all do this in the same room. As as Absolutely, because the big yeah. shift is people wanting one. Well, it's not a big shift; it's happened some time. People wanting one very large room. But what they, what yeah. people can do, and again, this is I'll again, comes of research, is they can all sit on their social media in the same room and be together and yeah. be in the world all with, at the same time
1: with headphones on. Yeah.
4: Um, I was just going to add. Um, I don't know if any any of you saw the there was an April Fool this year, which was. Um, Uh, They're very big on Twitter, this uh, organisation called Project Wild Thing, all about trying to get kids... Back into you know spending time outside, and the April Fool was that um, although when I actually explained it to kids, they, did, they said, "Oh, that sounds fantastic." <laughs> it was that Minecraft. There was a new kind of Minecraft, and it was outside. And actually, there's this free new Minecraft park that had just opened. In fact, it was just outside your back door. In fact, your front door. Anywhere that you want. And you know, I was trying to. I was talking to one of my uh, nephews about this. He said, "Really? This sounds amazing. Where is it?" gosh, you know, this kind of disconnection. Um, But yeah, I think that really just, yeah, kind of put, if you can play, maybe it's just a matter of just transplanting some of these kids, but I don't know, there are much younger people out there than me who can uh, say more about that.
1: You you mentioned, Lindsay, about the the, um, homogeneity of the the estate where you grew up. I wonder whether the meaning of home, the psychology of home is altered by having a generic home. So if you see something that you realise is generic, a generic box that's been kind of, Planned rather than designed. Yeah. Does that have a detrimental impact, or de- actually, as a kid, does it not bother you at all? Do you just think that's normal?
3: Uh, well, I mean, certainly when I was a kid, I didn't realise it was any different because yeah. uh, I'd never really been out. I'd never been much further than uh, than beyond uh, where I lived. Um, but but it's interesting this question of uniformity because of course you know um, you know bay windowed Victorian terraces are incredibly mm-hmm. uniform looking, you know, and the, the, yeah. the Georgian. You know the Georgian townhouses. You know is 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 as flat fronted mm-hmm. as the as the houses as the houses that were built. You know so many of the houses that were built in the sixties. Um, you know e- equally flat fronted, and so you know that brings into you know that brings in all the questions of uh, sort of um, of uh, you know scale and. Um, scale and proportion and you know the windows and things like that you know i mean one of the sort of the chief ob- objections i suppose i raised uh, in, in my book really was that um uh was that the, the windows were so small you know the windows the windows were small and, and the, the well, one of the things that, that strikes me I, you know i go back i go back um to, to my mom my mum still lives in, in the house where i grew up you know i go back there about once a fortnight and the thing that always strikes me that's so different to, to where i where I have lived in adult or the place I've lived in in adulthood is you just get this enormous, enormous sense of sort of encroaching sky. It's like the sky is endless, mm. and yet at the same time it's bearing down on on you, and I think that does have you know a lot to do with the the, the, the scale and the design and again, you know as I say the the self-similarity. Um, of the housing, and it's a very, it's quite a sort of creepy feeling. Actually, actually
1: <laughs> I, I, live in a, I live in a... There's something very
5: fascinating about this kind of crossover between the uh, digital and the real world, in a, in a way. And I, and I think it, 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 it's... The digital world doesn't give us kind of the three-dimensional space that we can inhabit. And I think what's interesting is if you think about the growth, for example, of just coffee and coffee shops, which is global. And in reality, you're saying that that's another form of rental. Actually, people go into a coffee shop and they plug into they want their Wi-Fi and they plug into their Wi-Fi. They plug into their zone. They take their coffee, and that's actually rental. So there's occupation. And I, my view is that it doesn't really. I'm not. I'm not defending any one tenure over any other. What I'm saying is, the city needs to find a way to absorb new people and all our families and all our individuals and all our different forms of occupation in a way which is very fresh. And the difficulty I think we face that we do need disruption for is that we come with a kind of arcane attitude towards anything that's new. So if we suddenly say, we look at a a statistic like uh, families are getting smaller, uh, and I think the figure is 60% under the 2011 census, of uh, those people living in London were in two people or less, and 33% were in single person households. That just actually means that the form of housing that you're going to deal with, and when you look at, you discuss this with any London planning authority, they will say that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. It's as if it's, and when you say that's irrelevant, it's saying the census, which is actually an accurate statement of what we were all doing on the census night, is no longer a driver. For the reality of how we get, how we're making our city.
1: Well, I'd like to do a little experiment, if I might. Can I ask the audience uh, if you live in shared accommodation? So, if you if you share a room in a flat with others, would you or a house? Would you put your hands up? Share a, uh, a dwelling. Share a dwelling. Share a dwelling with others with other co co payers. Right. So the younger, almost. Oh, that's interesting. So this is one of the things that I've noticed, thank you. That's, uh, that's I'd say, more than half of the audience. And that, that's a sector that's completely uncatered for Interestingly,
0: Interestingly, well, in the research that we did, we discovered that the figures for single-person flats, which come out again and again and again, mm-hmm. were completely skewed. Yeah. But it turns out that, that actually their definition of a person living alone was a person that did not share a meal with somebody else. <laughs> so if, if you share a flat with somebody, and you don't share a meal with them, that defined you as a single person household. Right. So actually this whole, the statistics on which planning and all of these things have been based yeah. is based on a bizarrely skewed survey. Um, uh, uh,
1: it's a bad question. Well, look, I'll, I'll, as I've got you slightly involved now, we'll open, um, open the, uh, the floor up to questions from the audience. If I could stick your hand up and we'll send a mic your way if anyone's got any questions.
2: Uh, I guess it's just the thing of uh, saying like housing is a right, you know, to shelter and all the rest of it. But there's a big debate between when you make housing a market, uh, whether it can be a right as well. Because with such like 20,000 people waiting on Hackney uh, Council, waiting for a Hackney Council flat, th- there's no right to housing there. So without a surplus surplus of housing, how can we have a right to housing?
1: That's both a statement and a question, interestingly, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's indisputable. We talked about this earlier, you mentioned that, that in yeah, India... I, I, said, I said, yes. You mentioned that in India, housing is a right. Of course, they have, they have an, millions of homeless people living on the, on, in the gutters, so it's a, it's a curious kind of right. The right doesn't necessarily mean it, it needs to be satisfied, is the problem.
5: Yeah, I, I, I think there are, you know, there are three fundamentals, aren't there, which is, which is food, shelter and housing. Uh, sorry, food, food, shelter, and clothes. And and I think what's so so interesting is that not in obviously in parts of the world, uh, food is famine and difficult. In other parts of the world, particularly where we are, food is completely. Uh, we we have far too much of this. If all if all of us were honest about how much food we threw threw away, however careful we are, we'd still find stuff that actually we we turf out of the fridge. Clothing again is totally ubiquitous, and it's become so cheap that actually you can you can have whatever amount of clothing, and shelter in our in our society has become almost unaffordable to everybody. So the only people, if you think about it, in certain parts of London who actually inhabit anywhere are either old folk like myself who happen to buy houses at a time and never moved on. Um, people coming in from all over the world who are affording to, to bring their global capitalism into that place, or uh, people who are inhabiting social housing. So it's a very distorted market. And my point about saying shelter is shelter of, as of right is a view that we need to take politically. Because is it, if it is a, a, as of right, what does it mean? And it isn't necessarily, it means that we actually have the kind of, that we want to have a set of prescribed or offered housing. It may be that we should actually be able to do something about it. We should be able to build where we want. It was a wonderful, uh, after the First World War, in uh, 1918, um, Boner Law uh, actually there was a, he had a campaign, which was, we all remember, Homes Fit for Heroes. And that Homes Fit for Heroes was coupled with a planning, what was called plotland development, which gave a freedom and an anarchy that we couldn't even conceive of today in our overregulated world, where anybody could take anything, and we've seen old railway, light, old railway carriages anything was then made into a home and there are lots of kind of settlements and in a way if you look at the history of that it then leads to the controls that went in with the planning. Now I'm not suggesting that we're going to have a re-emergence of the plot lands but it did have a political notion, not the speeches that we're hearing today which is saying I'm going to build 200,000, I'm going to build 150,000, I'm going to build 200,000 all of which we know are actually not going to happen at all but it had a kind of sense of the bottom up that actually there is a kind of ability for each of us in this, in this room to actually want and demand and ha- as have as of right, your own shelter. One of the problems with it, of course, is what's right.
0: It's, no, no, sorry. No, of course, <laughs> I mean, human problem. rights don't but, come but, without problems. No, one, come bro- on, Robert, let's no, one, get but, real. No, We're no, not no. talking about what's easy no, no, to no, have. No, no, it's, it's rights to what? I mean, it, rights to shelter. I mean, I, I, my, my father, who's now 98, told me the other, who used to do midwifery in the corbels, well, they did have shelter, but the whole family lived in one room. You know, so it, you, 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 it, it opens up all sorts of questions. And once you ask, once you ask those questions... No, I mean, he was a doctor. He, he was a doctor. <laughs> okay, right, okay. He did his midwifery, did his midwifery, midwifery. midwifery. in the 19, in the, 19, in the 19, late 30s and early 40s. And then, actually, people did have shelter there, but the whole families lived in one room. And so, the, the problem is that once you open that political question up, you end up with, with what is called bedroom tax. You know, in other words, do people have rights to, to more than they actually need? And you end up with what happened at the end of the Russian Revolution, when you had square meter commissars who basically went into houses. And, of course, the accommodation in Russia was absolutely appalling before 1918, and they just divided everything up into square meters. <laughs> Isn't so it it's...
5: not a tax going on
0: right now. Well, no, that's, but in a way, that's my point. That's exactly the point I just made. It's, it's, the trouble is it's such a huge political issue um, that, in the end, all, all governments, and this is, this is Roger's point, all governments end up uh, in, in some way tied into the only way they can see it actually being delivered without having to shell loads, out, loads of taxpayers' money. Which is to developers, and the other problem that happens with developers, and again, this is uh, I would agree with Roger, is one of the problems with developers is they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't mean they get build more and more houses. Is actually the numbers of developers out there has gone down significantly. So uh, a result of that, this actually results in a in a, a, a lesser choice uh, and b uh, not only is a lesser choice but much more control over the market. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a significant problem, but I mean, to I be careful what you ask for, that's all I really say.
1: The notion of people building for themselves is very interesting. It's something you see in um, developing economies that architects are concentrating on at the moment, the, the, how, how you get people to help themselves, but also to, to, to build in such a way that it suits themselves rather than being provided with the kind of council housing that Lindsay was talking about earlier, but I noticed also a report recently on the the big DIY chains, that their profits are collapsing because people aren't doing DIY anymore. Whereas in my childhood, it was a kind of, uh, uh, another human right was to, was to put a porch light, you know, a carriage lamp up about your side, you're in a fan light in your door and all the rest of it. And I, I mean, I, I would guess, although it wasn't mentioned in any of the reports, that part of that is because people don't own their homes anymore. People, people are renting, which completely skews the investment that people have in their housing. But I wondered actually about this uh, idea of bottom up housing, which I think you which you introduced, which is very interesting. If people are if people have a hand in the design of their houses are allowed to have a hand, not just necessarily in the design, but in the adaptation of their houses, does it change the relationship they have to their house? And is there a way we
3: can enable that? That's interesting because one of the things that I wrote that I was writing down both when we, you were talking about you know were uh, disruptions you know disruptive uh, disruptive technologies and and also in the terms of the the right to housing you know wh- how do we talk about the right to housing now one of the things I wrote down was prefabs, and um, one of the most popular forms of post war housing um, was the prefab, and you know they're so incredibly unprepossessing you know in 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 a basic sense but what people loved about their prefabs and what uh, meant that people stayed in them for life, even though they were essentially sheds, is because they were, you know, they were detached bungalows with gardens, and that that basically is what everybody wants, you know, because it marries the it marries the uh, you know the security, comfort, privacy, and space and the garden all together, and they've got a high level of adaptability to them, you know, and if you see sort of that there are a few uh, prefab estates still left, and there's one just outside Wolverhampton well, if you ever if you ever get the train sort of north of Wolverhampton, there's a, there's a, a prefab estate just just quite near the railway tracks in uh, in Wolverhampton, and they have been uh, you know adapted and improved to within an inch of their lives. You know that they, they've been you know they've been clad. You know, like a lot of ex council houses, you know they've been clad. They've had you know Grecian columns put at the front. You know plaster acorns, y- y- you name it. And and you know one of the things I was going to say is is that you know the when we think about the the right to housing it's it's not just the housing and it's not just the shelter it's the right to it's the right to um to to uh, you know as as I said before you know it's the right to be in a place that you that, that you would choose to be in and so therefore it has to be. Uh, you know, a marriage of the of the housing itself and the amenities that are available to it. And, you know, the, the prefabs, uh, you know, w- were viewed as a short-term solution and were essentially built on cleared bomb sites, you know, with a 10-, 15-year lifetime. And the fact that some of them are still there, you know, not not really enough of them are still in existence, you know, 75 years later, um, is a testament to that, to the, you know, the durability of the adaptability, really.
0: I've just come from a meeting today where we included on a plan um, a certain number of houses for self build Interestingly, uh, there was a, an estate outside Bournemouth, which I, I only went to see because I was judging architectural awards and an architect to build a house there, um, which had exactly this. It, it was a, um, There were a number of plots where people could buy them and build their own houses. And the really, the really fascinating thing about them was they were just the same as the houses in the rest of the estate, except that they were much bigger on their plots, because people actually but, and why that is well, I don't know it, uh, either it was general taste the negative view was they just wanted to resell them So they didn't want to be different you could tell the architect scheme because it was completely different from all the others So uh, I, I, I came I can that rather depressed actually is that, 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 that In the end and it goes back to another point the one that, that you asked about uniformity one piece of research or the research we did um, was that we asked people you know about uniformity and, and individuality and the questions. This is a focus group. Very interesting. They said we don't. The only the really thing they really didn't want to be was what was called a lottery winner's house, because they regarded a lottery winner's house as being ostentatious, flashy, and would stand out. And so we said, "Well, what?" We said, well, what do you want?" And it wasn't me asking the question. I have to say, I kept very quiet in it. But it was. Um, they said, "Well, we want our. Is this important difference um, uh, between um, uh, being different?" Uh, and, and being, um, uh, um, was, was it, a difference? This was I mean a difference and in, in being um, extraordinary. They didn't want to be extraordinary. What, they, what most people were saying was, well, we want just to be the house with the red door or the house with a different porch. We really didn't want to be. People really didn't want to be different from other people. Now, that research is 15 years old now. I don't think social trends change that rapidly. And they said that it's a very common observation for foreigners coming to Britain. As saying, why is it that all the houses are all the same? And I actually don't think it's necessary to do with developers. I think there's a deep cultural desire not to stand out too much, but to stand out just enough, so that you don't say, I'm the third house on
5: the left, mm-hmm. you say, I'm the, I'm the house with a slightly different porch on the left. Um, Custom building is a very interesting movement, but it, also, it, what's interesting to recognize is, if you look across at America, um, from the middle of the 19th century, you had the entire uh, cooperative movement and condominium movement, which actually built uh, in urban situations, and that the the American form of um, or the American form of actually supporting that was supporting that through their uh, through their special mortgages, Freddie Mac and Freddie May. And I think what's fascinating to me is that those. Were an experiment in in urbanism, and they were an experiment in, in groups of people taking their own action in an organised way. And I think it's quite interesting. Another research that I saw recently was in Hong Kong, where um, there was a uh, it was a research really a, a survey of public housing projects. And I didn't realise until I read this survey that the um, Hong Kong government or the public when they uh, Rent you a, a public housing? Only provide inside this, albeit thirty-five square meter unit, a bathroom and a kitchen. Everything else is just open space. And so, inside this, these public housing, what this book was showing was kind of photographs of different pe- the way different people lived. And every single individual was ranging and had decided how they can make it. So, I, I'm not convinced that it's. I think it's. Maybe there is some weirdness that we're attached to this extraordinary um, schizophrenia between our wish, which is what this the the, the the topic of tonight is, the, the you know, the birthday parties that we wanted, the life, the birth, the history of our life, the longevity, all the things which actually are the psychology of the home. And on the other side, there's a split. You're thinking, oh my God, did my home go up by 100 grand? Did, I, did my home make more than I made last year? And those two things actually are very difficult to hold together. And I think that actually that all the points that Robert makes which are very good are the innate conservatism with a a small c because you think I can't build a double height volume or take that floor away although I'd love to because when I come to resell that the state agents say oh my god what did you do there?
1: British. Houses are sold on on bedroom numbers, aren't they, rather than square footage, which is a very they're, curious. They're, they're
5: becoming more square footage So if you place, if you but do but
1: do a, a double height space, you lose at least one bedroom, and that's it. There's a hundred grand gone, so it's a it's a real problem. But what do you, I mean, one thing we haven't addressed, a few of you raised it, but this idea of the sense of place, is there a kind of particularly British sense of place which is attached to to a, you know a view of a tree or a small patch of green land? Because I know that I was I was in Barcelona over the summer and. There is absolutely no space, and no one there has it. They're very, very lucky they might have a a rooftop terrace, but it's almost uh, unheard of. And yet, it it almost seems to me that it contributes to urban life, so that life in the city is better because people don't have their own space, and they actually have to use the city. So what do you think about that?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's... um it's quite interesting that um, when we talk about what it is in terms of aspirations for family housing, it is the house with the garden, mm-hmm. and to what extent that can be challenged in the UK and in um, Edinburgh, where tenements are still you know, very well sought after, with a particular piece of shared space there, which may or may not be used. But you're still talking about flat life, but flat life that is for families. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that, you know, I think we... Could do with finding out a bit more about as to whether you know if there are lots of single with an aging population. There are going to be, is, a, is there going to be a glut of, you know, single occupancy flats, you know, further down the line that never mind all the conversions of offices to residential, are we going to have to start converting single occupancy to, you know, much larger flats? And does that then question what our cities and the kind of what urban living is all about? Um, certainly in a place like Sheffield, where, you know, we have got a lot of pressures in terms of um, thinking that lots of people come to the city centre to do their shopping, well, actually, we've got a very um competitive out of um uh, out of city uh, shopping development um Meadowhall you know which has crucified the city center basically still having an ongoing discussion about what the city is for and there are, you know, there are. There's quite a. There's a growing group of um, of residents, you know. And they're becoming more mobilised. They're an. They're an older age group, you know. They've. Um, you know, they're, they're they're getting more political power to actually say, well, you know, what are our city centres for? So I think when you look at European models, and I don't know to what extent, um, you know, beyond when uh, Richard Rogers and Co went over um, to Amsterdam and um, Barcelona and brought back the, uh, you know, if cafe culture and lots of kind of small um, living spaces um, over to the UK, where was the family, you know, in that? Where was the urban family and uh, where that life was? Or was it just disregarded because there was no garden and it's an unacceptable idea that people would live, you know, in the UK without a garden? I mean, it happens. Also, where climate is similar, you know, we don't have to go very far, Copenhagen, you know, incredibly rainy, similar sort of conditions. But I think
0: it's interesting, though, the suburb, I'm sorry, this is a very unfashionable subject, but the house with a garden um, detached from other houses is an incredibly successful model. It's one of um, Britain and America, Britain really invented them and America took them over big time. It's one of their most successful exports. If you go to China and you go to India, um, or the great aspiration are these huge, huge suburbs of these small houses with gardens. Even actually, bizarrely, in the Middle East, where it really doesn't work because you end up with a house in the middle of a plot, so you don't, one house on the side of the house you can't use because it's too hot, and so on and so on. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, the, the, in fact, the Economist published a, a piece on this quite recently about, about the suburb and you know I mean, much of the, the chagrin of all ar- ar- architects and urbanists. They said actually it's really rather good and but it's a very good export.
4: It is. But again, is that because there are no other alternatives, or that is what we are all led to believe is the is the kind of the holy grail or what we all must aspire to? And it's interesting you talk about India. I was um, doing some research over there uh, last year, and it was more in public spaces and the idea of the park. And that again and you know translated from the British context and actually people are beginning to question what, what is the park over there you know uh, what, ha, what, what does that have um, in common or in keeping with Indian culture and where new parks are being developed and created which have got lawns and have got you know incredibly you know maintenance intensive um, you know landscape um, solutions which don't fit that particular climate, this interesting don't fit that.
0: I mean, I anyone mean, anyone here from Holland, by the way? Um, anyone here from Holland? No, I mean, if you, certainly in, in Holland and, and, and some of the Scandinavian countries, um, to walk immediately past somebody's very large window to get to your front door is not regarded as at all problematic. It's regarded as hugely problematic in Britain. You want to be very, very careful about, about you know, traveling to other places and saying, this is rather nice over there, why don't we do it here? I mean, it's I, it's... Actually, in Sweden, people—you know—the the, the large front windows, um, which you can look into from the street, and uh, effectively your house is displayed—are very common. Uh, you, I really,
5: I really don't see that in the UK. Well, I think the way—I I, mean—we have in the UK we have the sin of overlooking, so it's actually is a kind of, we've we've turned it into a kind of religious sin. Although you can actually quite easily pull a blind, uh, but I, I I don't buy all this kind of endless. I mean, I think. That 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 actually in 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 what we've talked about today is that the, we cannot have the city endlessly exploding into the countryside. It is an, it is a, it's an absurdity because we have no access to all of the uh, services that we need. We have no access to our uh, to our own infrastructure of work, to our infrastructure of of schools, of doctors. And the density that we have in the center of our cities, what I think we have to challenge, and I think it's an interesting challenge, is the notion of when you look at a map of London and you overlay the conservation areas, which in a way are a kind of isolation, you recognize that you see that the conservation areas are the ones that are most or best supported in terms of the kind of infrastructure, yet the ones that they are kind of forbidden to have some kind of densification. So I think that there's a kind, to me, I think it's a challenge and it's a real challenge for our, for our 21st century. And that I, I don't agree that the, the English export is the, is the bungalow. That was, that obviously did go out to India. But the, the other thing that I think the great, the great export was the terraced house. And the terraced house was a great, I think it's actually our only housing brand. Because it's something that pe- everybody aspires to, wants to love, adores, they want to spend their life kind of re- remaking the Victorian edition. At
0: the other scale, actually, it's the country house. Uh, oh, well, uh, that, uh, well that, but yeah, but, but Robert, uh, that's your. Uh, uh, yeah. but actually, Roger, I, I, we kept be clear. I wasn't saying <laughs> it was necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. I was just saying it is a very successful product. And the, the, the reason it's, you have to observe the reason that it's a successful product. Now, that, it merely is a bigger challenge. The, the truth of the matter is that, that, that in, you know, uh, uh, interestingly, a lot of these suburbs are called by, uh, in India and in China, are called by American or European names. Very, in, very interesting phenomenon. I will get onto globalization now. <laughs> it, uh, very interesting. Now that, the, the uh, I don't disagree about density. I don't disagree about the problems of services. All I'm really saying is that it, it is a very successful product. It's a very successful product for a reason. I think that reason is that fundamental desire for privacy in space. And it delivers the, the, you privacy in space.
1: Perhaps the, the it's uh, that the suburban and the, and the um, detached house is such a successful model because it is pre deracidated. It's already rootless. So it's ideal for a kind of globalized uh, uh, non place. I wonder whether actually you know the the, the 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 things that you talked about, which I'll come back to you in a moment, the things that you talked about, the um the wall or the old door and the kind of a for want of a better expression, the psychogeography of a place is what keeps people coming back. And the problem with the with the new suburbs is that that deracination, that they are kind of non-places.
4: With Robert's point about you know not wanting to walk past other people's um, windows in Sheffield, which is kind of somewhere between the it's not but the, we've got rows of terraced houses that have the alleyway, the ginnel, the genel, depending on your pronunciation. And then, and, and so you've, you've effectively got enclosed gardens, which are for four of those terraced houses. Now, I don't know whether I'm living in some kind of wonderful utopia where me and my neighbours, we all get on and, um, we've all, we have open gardens. So when kids come in, they just run across all four of those gardens. We're not talking about huge, you, you know, with little sort of postage stamp bits of grass and all the rest of it. But it's it's got you know this kind of real sense of um, variety about it. You go into the next alleyway, you've got four very different things. They might all have their own little fences up. There might be, you know, sort of a different set of, of um, scale around it. But what what is interesting is that that variety is, is still coming out. That personalisation, I think, that Lindsay was talking about. You've got the uniformity, but you've got that freedom to be able to personalise it. And you know and. What kind of you know, hundreds or 75 years ago? Well, and we knocked down our outhouse that was out the back, you know, the outside toilet. All of those are being incorporated in different ways. They're either being extended onto if they're in a certain configuration, being knocked down, turned into something else. You know, bricks being then sent over to another part of Sheffield. And it's just, I think, I think it is about that kind of freedom that we're that seems to well, certainly chimes with. With my experience and um, and what happens in Sheffield and what is fascinating, I've learned recently, was that um, you have all these lines of terrace houses and kids back in the sort of forties and fifties, they would engage in this, this stuff called back nicking. So you'd go into an alleyway one in one of these um, uh, one of these streets and try and get as far as you can through people's gardens and back doors without you know c- kind of um, getting get to the end. Of, oh, it was you know I mean, there are all kinds of uh, injuries and uh, stuff, but you know fantastic kind of pastime, which you know. Very Sheffield-specific, I I think. I mean, obviously, I'd need to to do more investigation of other terrace houses, but, yeah, fascinating.
5: But but it it is about choice, isn't it? I mean, what what Limsey says, which is absolutely right, is that actually you need to have those secret places. And in a way, I suppose what I'm saying is that there is a reality. uh, 3.5 billion human beings at the moment are uh, urbanised across the globe. The 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 uh, the statistics are that that's going to extend by two billion, all of which are going to be in cities. So that actually that 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 scale of urbanisation is is in a way beyond our comprehension. So that the charm that we are actually suggesting exists, and which we analyse and know exists, and that charm of the of our of our own ability to be able to control that space, whether it's a back ginnel, or whether it's a kind of whether it's a a tree in that street, or a broken-down wall, is something that we that is fundamental in our in our hearts. It sits inside our kind of our bodies. So I think the challenge that we have for development, and it is for development, is to actually find a way to translate that into the kind of volume of space that I we think, actually need. I think
0: the, I think the, as you rightly say, the global problem is breathtaking, and anything we're doing here, frankly, is a boutique activity in comparison with a global problem. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, it, 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 if you want to be socially responsible, you've got to deal with places like Kenya and and, uh, and India, and, and the bizarre way China's dealing with it, by dispossession, and so on and so on. But as a sort of final point, I'd like to say, just be very careful about knocking suburbs. You know, unfortunately, it's all very popular to knock suburbs, but actually, it, I think the statistics, I can't remember the figure, it's something like 80% of the population or maybe more it's 18, live in something that's 18. designed that actually is designated as a suburb, and actually, if you really are socially responsible, um, what you should be doing is is making sure that these places which we call suburbs and are very sniffy about, I mean sniffy about since bedroom and everything else, are decent places, are places that have character and and are places that people want to live in and do have access to services. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that they're not going to go away. Certainly the large developments that we're doing, which we try and make into decent urban places and try and make dense, you would probably, in city terms, define them them as suburbs. And I actually believe making those into decent places is terribly, terribly important.
1: Go back to the audience for a moment and see whether we've got any new questions since then.
6: Thank you. I've got a few points. In fact, Robert's come up with one of them briefly already. And actually, they do link to a sense of choice. I think and Possibly some of these are radical. Let's make land banking illegal. Um, compulsory purchase is well underused. I think land is simply too valuable for everybody on the planet. It needs to be shared around. Um, energy efficiency under this government is getting worse. The next generation of housing, new housing, will be more expensive to heat than the last generation. And there are... People who have a choice between heating or eating. And that is, health wise, deeply damaging. Psychologically, you can bring into that decent daylighting levels in properties. And um, there are health authorities who are now investing in energy efficiency for housing because it's cheaper to do that, to treat the house once, than to have the patient come back season after season. I recognize that's not widespread. Not everybody in this room may know somebody who has a choice between heating or eating. But nevertheless, it's an increasing problem. I think self-built, which is the point Robert brought up briefly, is incredibly useful. It produces an, an additional set of skill sets. Um, and the lessons learned from that and the time spent and the use to which people can be put and understand, increase their own skills, very, very valuable. And that really is choice you then do have fantastic input, motivation, and so forth. Let's make that really widespread. Why are there only one or two building societies interested in that, in that model? And finally, we've got an enormous stock of existing buildings for which proper retrofit in terms of energy efficiency is simply not taking place. I've just finished a specialist retrofit course for housing. It was fascinating. And to understand that we as a construction society don't really properly understand how the physics of building works and how to deal with it and preserve for longevity the really quality fabric that we already have which is worldwide recognized we have buildings that are falling apart simply because we don't understand how to maintain them properly I submit those thoughts to you for comment.
0: this is a little story but it was about a client of mine who is a land dealer and he banks land Um, And he went to the local authority which should remain nameless because I'm not supposed to talk about it really and the um, the, the, It was a key piece of the development of this small town a new development And he just lost two appeals to local authority and he was so fed up with them He said I just keep pigs on it. I don't want them to develop it at all And local authority absolutely furious. They said this is ridiculous. You're a developer You don't want to develop the land He said, no I don't give a damn anymore I'm just gonna sit on it and they said well we're compulsory purchased. He said yes, please do he said, because I'll be in court for the next two years, and I'll get my sales value out of it, um, and that'll be just fine. I mean, one of the problems with compulsory purchase is actually um, our legal system and the, uh, and, the, uh, and the idea that it should in some way be equitable. So, I mean, compulsory purchase is underused, but that's why it's underused, because the court you can sit in court for the next sort of five years arguing about it, and you'll still end up with loads of money. I'll just make one other brief point. I'll let somebody else talk. I was talking far too much. Um, energy efficiency, I agree completely. One of the key things about energy efficiency is not just building fabric, and this way I'm agreeing with Roger, is actually about how you live and where you live. Important if, if, if thing, the BEDZ, the, very, the famous scheme, that you know, actually all of that energy efficiency was outstripped with the fact that everyone drove to work. Just, you know, so uh, energy efficiency is a completely holistic issue. It's, it's not just about building fabric, it's about how you, much you move about. Curiously, it's possible the digital revolution will help this, because actually people will be able to work at home more. So, I mean, energy efficiency, all people are interested in numbers and, and, and arithmetic. But actually, a lot of it's about the way we live.
3: Just to add to that, I think uh, you know, I was going to say another thing about disruptive technologies before. I think the best disruption that could happen would be to make uh, all local public transport free. That would free up the point of use. So probably a yeah. better way to put it. Um, but in terms of retrofitting, I think one of the best uh, examples of retrofitting is, is, is indeed the uh, the Homes for One Pound scheme in in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the uh, Gramby Four Streets, uh, which are for uh, lovely Victorian streets in uh, Liverpool 8 um, have been derelict for I think 35 years and are now all um, house by house and through a sort of consortium of different groups including a community land trust um, housing association some directly by the council and some, uh, some houses are sold by the council to individuals for £1 uh, on condition that they fully refit out the house uh, that's going to sort of uh, create the sort of homes that are, you know be worth about a billion quid in London. <laughs> well,
1: that could have happened in London on the bigger estates, couldn't it? The Ellersbury Estate and the the Elephant and Castle. I mean, these are that could have happened if yeah. there was the will, but there's not. The political will here is always with the, is always with big capital. Okay. Any others? Because I'm going to have to wrap up soon. Yeah, let's take a couple. I'll, I'll, you? Are there, there anyone else?
7: Yeah, um, I'm kind of drawing from a few of those issues. Um, a shift that I was I thought about. I went to a lecture on wiki house a couple of weeks ago i don't know if you're familiar with that or not which is um such a model that they're they're producing open access design so you're (laughs) sharing design through 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 that and then from that creating prefab housing so it it's a notion that people could from what i understand can then customize it they can share that information and then reduce the the uh the cost of architect design t- so that you're then getting customization getting that kind of vernacular um, and then building that and it's again it, it, I guess it comes back to land price in this countries. it would kind of draw that out I think the wiki
5: house concept is a really clever one and I think it, it, it I think the issue we have to separate this issue about land is that actually there is a lot of public sector land And we don't actually have to deal with um, the opportunities for compulsory purchase, I think, the government missed it. They could have put all the all the buildings, all the house builders, uh, into bankruptcy, which would have been a short run. And they had the opportunity because they all were defaulting their loans, and they bailed out all the banks. So they could have taken a tough stance, but they didn't. So they missed that opportunity, uh, and that would be a good disruption in the industry. Um, but I think in, in terms of, at uh, the moment, uh, the statistics are in urban land that the government owns or uh, publicly owned land is about 60 percent. And I think that we then have to ask the, uh, the public authorities to be more responsible with what it is that they have. And it's too easy for them to take a parcel of land, particularly where I deal with these uh, small infill sites, these small gap sites, and to just simply put it to auction. Now they get the best price at the day, but then that same parcel of land is then flipped from purchaser to purchaser as it gets traded on. And I think there are some very interesting, there was a really interesting uh, comment made by, uh, by the Grosvenor Estates, and they referred to something known as patient capital. And I thought this was a really interesting thought. And what they were describing in in this uh, research paper was that the Grosvenor Estates and the other great estates who have been around for 250 years have had an attitude that they they retain their land but give people the right to build on them. And I think if the public sector took that kind of approach, certainly from my, my point of view, we would be happy to take a building lease. It then allows a control that actually allows development to take place and it allows that development to take place at equality Which is exactly what happened with the greater states
0: the other, the other thing a few years ago actually, I think it was initiated by Terry Farrell a group of us had a look at publicly owned land um, around his office, which is you know, um, Pinchley Road area and um, It was actually staggering the amount of public land that was available and unused and you remember that, that, that a house I I talk about a house in a garden now you can get into six meters by 12 meters You very small amount of space you go I want to do an exercise to go on every piece of wasted highway land and see many houses you can get in it You go to any town anywhere and the staggering amounts of land are just wasted Which could which could take houses and so on Mm. but it's just too much bother They just can't be bothered and the local I mean in this case it was it was in London, but I mean I see it everywhere I find actually waste of space, and it comes into the way things are planned, is, is a major crime that t- is is taking place all the time. They just can't be bothered. It's just too difficult, uh, and you could get you could uh, I mean you could, you could fit enormous. You go to any historic town which had walls around it, or where space was at a premium. You go to a place like Amsterdam. You can get a ha- you can get a house into a three meter frontage. It's all can be done, but we just don't do it.
4: That kind of down to this idea of what the the kind of the housing that we want versus the housing that is is available. That lack of choice means that you know we are all going to live in the suburbs because that's what there is, you know. And I think we all seem to be in agreement on that. That there has to be more choice. Give us more control over the choices that we make, and, and then yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, so I think we have to leave it there. We all want to live in Shoreditch, but we're all going to end up in the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid that is the meaning of home for today. Thank you ever so much to my panel. Thank you so much for coming. I think there's an opportunity to have a chat with us if there are any more questions or with each other, if you've had enough of us. And thanks very much again to the Royal Academy and for your all coming. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.